thank you for joining us today on the Sword and Trial. Today, Graham and I have the wonderful privilege of welcoming into the studio from Dallas, Texas, Josh Abatoy. Uh, Josh is a Harvard-trained lawyer who does work now with American Reformer and some other uh, organizations as well. And he's been tracking the border crisis in Texas very carefully. And so he helps us to think about it from a Christian perspective. He's written on this at the American Reformer and other places, and he's uh, spoken about it a lot. It's a rapidly evolving situation, and Josh's perspective on what Governor Abbott is doing and how that might work for the welfare of uh, not just Texas, but the United States is worth considering. So we encourage you to tune in, and if you have others that are interested in this important matter, uh, please pass this podcast along to them. If you've not subscribed or liked this podcast, we'd encourage you to do that. That just helps us with the algorithms that take place on the various platforms where the Sword and Trial exists. Welcome to the Sword and Trial. The Sword and Trial is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. I'm Tom Askell. And I'm Graham Gundon. Delighted to have you join us again today, and we're looking forward to having a conversation with our good friend, Josh Abatoy, who's coming to us from the great state of Texas, uh, Dallas, Texas, to be exact, a place where I used to live. So, Josh, Welcome. Thank you, gentlemen. It's great to be here. So tell us what you're doing in Dallas. Yeah, so I I, uh, I hooked up with Nate Fisher and the folks at New Founding, and I'm, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a lawyer and private equity guy by background, and so I've been doing a lot of business dealings with them, and then at the same time, um, helping to run a nonprofit that... Um, that we, we started a couple years back called American Reformer. So we've got a journal and we've got, um, we've also got a number of other initiatives uh, outside the journal where we're trying to work with Christian institutions to buttress them for the challenges of, of today. But uh, yeah, that's what brought me to Dallas. I've been here for a little bit over a year now. I actually, um, before this, I would have said I was more of a Houston guy, Tom. So mm-hmm. I, I hope that's not, um, unfortunate news run welcome news for you but uh i have to say i I do like dallas a fair bit um it's it's grown on me so yeah well uh, dallas has grown everywhere and on everybody who's uh up there but it's massive i grew up in beaumont not far from houston so i'm kind of a houston Mm -hmm. guy but i lived in dallas for five five and a half years or so and uh spent time in the dallas fort worth area before moving to the free state of florida so I'm glad to be here, uh, enjoying the sunshine uh, in Florida. But I'm glad you're in Dallas. And by the way, American Reformer uh, is doing some great work. And so yeah. we will link to AmericanReformer.org. If you're not reading their journal, you, you're missing out on opportunities to be kept up on uh cutting edge thinking, biblical thinking on a lot of important issues that are confronting us today. And we want to talk to you uh, about one of those issues. But Josh, let me just ask you again to elaborate on your background. I mean, you are a trained lawyer. I think you went to Harvard Law, didn't you? So just give us a brief Mm -hmm. uh, resume. Where did you do your undergrad work? And what what have you you talked about equities that you specialize uh, in just some financial deals? But give us just a a quick overview of your training. Well, you know, I was, I was blessed to be raised in a really strong, faithful Christian home. I was homeschooled, Mm. went to union university in Jackson, Tennessee Mm. for my undergraduate. So it's a Southern Baptist college, uh, 
a lot of great faculty there, like uh, people may know Ray Van Nest or Brad Green. Yep. Um, wonderful. Some really good people there. Um, and uh, yeah, I did that. And then I actually, I almost went into academia. I got a master's and was in the PhD program, but but opted out at uh, Catholic University where mm-hmm. I was doing medieval history. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I at that point I had gotten married and we had uh, the prospects of a kid on the way. And that, that um, got me a little more practical in my thinking, uh, <laughs> you know. Medieval history is not practical. Seeing, <laughs> you take <yeah>. that back. <laughs> well, you know, I was looking around and seeing colleagues in my field who, you know, had, had gotten PhDs from Harvard and <laughs> Yale and, you know, these prestigious postdocs and they were adjuncting, you know, driving, and, driving and, taxis. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, and then, you know, at the same time, I, I really did see, um, you know, people talk about critical theory, you know, kind of popping up in the late 2010s or whatever, but, um, you know, I had, I was seeing this in, in 2009, 2010, all the young people in, in medieval history, all of these fields that used to be kind of conservative intellectual fields with kind of old fashioned, scholars who who read the primary sources and knew the languages those people were giving way to this new generation of scholar who um was into critical theory Mm. and you know there's a million permutations of that right so it can be uh critical gender studies or you know critical race theory you know go down the list uh, queer queer theory Mm -hmm. is a thing um you know even fat studies i mean shockingly but but this I, i saw all of this stuff when i would go to like an academic conference or you know even the younger scholars in the field that i could have studied with and so got early exposure to a lot of that in my graduate work and then of course um you know went to law school and you know, frankly, um, wanted to make a good living. And, you know, I also wanted to get into a field where um, people still sort of took language seriously and argued in good faith. And, you know, and that, that um, to, to a great degree, that still is the case in law. You know, I still remember one of my first days in law school, a professor who is a, a man of the left, um, but he shut down a critical discussion in his, in his law school classroom and said very pointedly to, to a student, um, you know, this this is law in this profession. We must it is imperative that we act as if words mean something. Mm. Right. And we do not <laughs> when we analyze uh, case law, we do not uh, just immediately assume that judges are simply using whatever rationale they want to get to some outcome. We have to this profession all hangs together because we believe that you know, we can have a rational exchange about what the law should be. Mm. And uh, so, so that was, you know, that was refreshing. And to a large extent, the legal field is, is still somewhat insulated from some of the excesses of critical theory that you'd see in other disciplines. Although of course it's not immune. And and in the last five years, it has, um, there's been a number of compromises, um, but still it's, it's, it's a better profession um, in a lot of ways. So, you know, did did the law school thing and then and then worked in big firms in Houston and and then went in-house to a company that was backed by JP Morgan and I was the sort of uh the general counsel and the the head of um uh deal work for for that company um helping them acquire lots of different companies and such. Um so that's been sort of my my business background but at the same time since law school until now until today really I've been I've been fascinated and studied quite a bit this issue of immigration, mm-hmm. especially as it relates to where does the federal government's jurisdiction um, end and where where does the state's jurisdiction begin? 
Yeah, and so that's what we want to talk to you about today. And just to be clear, you went to Harvard Law, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yep. And when did you graduate? 2015. 2015. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thanks for joining us on this, man. And uh, help us just kind of set the stage. Uh, what in the world is going on in Texas? <laughs> I mean, this this is just kind of something of, of late that really has tentacles and roots that go back decades. So uh, can you give us an overview of that? Yeah. So this this has been a perennial issue, sort of a crisis ever since the Reagan administration, right? And it, there's been ebbs and flows in the number of you know illegal crossings at our southern border, um, but it's never gotten close to being permanently fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, e- even back in the Bush administration, Congress passed a bill that gave funding for and instructed Congress to prepare a to 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 uh, sorry Congress instructed the administration to prepare a wall on the southern border. That was back during the Bush administration. That was never carried out. Um, There's laws on the books uh, requiring all sorts of things that administrations uh, have not done over the years. Now, um, this really started to pick up to a fever pitch during the Obama years. Everybody remembers this was a big political issue during his first term. Um, In fact, he was so negligent that the state of Arizona passed a lot of laws that were designed to help Arizona start enforcing um, immigration law themselves because the federal government wasn't doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Supreme Court struck down those Arizona laws, and we can talk about some of that. They're relevant uh, to the debates we're having in Texas right now. But crucially, what the Obama administration did was in their second term, they went a step further than merely not enforcing laws. And uh, you may recall, um, you know, the, the uh, when Obama ruled out uh, the deferred Um, enforcement action policies or DACA, uh, what this did was, you know, it's one thing to have laws on the books that you don't enforce, but this took the non-enforcement up to the level of policy. So in other words, we're going to create an official program that doesn't exist in any laws on the books that say, you know, you have this deferred action status. And basically, we, you know, we hope and, you know, at some future date, we'll have comprehensive immigration reform, at which point you can have a path to citizenship. But until then, the federal government is giving you a card. It's giving you an official legal status, um, even though you're here illegally, that says, you know, you're entitled to remain. And so Obama did this in his second term. Um, the, The things that he did in his second term, he had said in his first term, I cannot do those because I am not an emperor. Right. And this was sort of widely reported. But then, you know, he took that action unilaterally in his second term. Huge political issue that led to the first election of Donald Trump. Um, You know, this was in a lot of ways the defining issue of his 2016 run. Um, And then, you know, Trump, uh, you know, Trump Trump, uh, made some modest gains on the immigration front, but, you know, frankly, didn't didn't do enough, Um, you know, he was stymied at, stymied at a lot of uh, points by courts and then also just by the um, the fourth uh, branch of the government, the administrative state, uh, which, uh, you know, if, if he's to get a second term, um, there's been a lot of very smart, capable people thinking very hard about how they can enable Trump to change over the personnel of the administrative state more quickly. Mm. It's a serious issue. And there's a lot of case law that makes it tough for a president to do so. Um, Nonetheless, you know, that's, that's sort of setting the table for Biden. Mm. Biden is um, under Biden's watch by all accounts. The border is, it's by far the worst the crisis has ever been. 
Um, it's the very conservative estimates. I mean, this is Biden's own administration says that over 6 million people have entered the country illegally uh, since Biden uh, took office. Um, now that that is, those are encountered people. Estimates are that only about three quarters of illegal crossings are encountered. So you can immediately ex extrapolate up from 6 million to 8 million. And then many, um, many watchdog groups say the actual number is far higher than that. But regardless, we can say something, something between uh, six to 8 million uh, at the lowest have crossed into our country since Biden took over. Mm -hmm. That number alone is bigger than most of the states in this country. Um, it's, it's a mind boggling number in 2023, over 3 million people crossed in this year alone. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody's probably seen on the news, some of the things that, uh, Abbott's been doing, uh, you know, he's been busing migrants to, uh, liberal areas, you know, to give them a taste of the, the, the burden on, on public resources that it is to have this many people coming into your country. Um, he has, and then, and then on the border itself, he started taking some very small steps. These are not big things, but in very particular areas and pain points, he's been putting up um, boundary, uh, like barriers. Uh, so he put floating barriers in parts of the Rio Grande. He started to put razor wire as a deterrent to crossings. And um, at the same time, um, about a month ago, Texas passed uh, – some laws that actually make it state offenses to be present in Texas illegally in violation of federal law. These are all very good developments. Um, what's happening is Biden, uh, Abbott has gotten a lot more rigorous about systematically challenging federal law and challenging the administration. So, you know, that, that's really teeing it up. Um, the, the, the very modest little flare point that everybody's seen in the news in the last week is that Abbott had removed federal agents from a little stretch of the border called Eagle Pass. This was a point where it was really easy to cross and, and they were seeing uh, some days thousands of people in one day cross in this area. So um, Abbott actually uh, took it over with the Texas military forces, um, removed federal agents from that stretch of the border and installed razor wire. Um, and, you know, and then uh, there, there's various different court cases going on around everything that's happening right now. So one of the cases, um, you know, the, the Abbott administration actually sued this, the federal government because they were removing wire fencing mm -hmm. on the border. There was an injunction on the administration that said they couldn't remove the wire fencing. And then um, the Supreme Court struck down that injunction. And so now the, the Biden administration says we're entitled to remove this fencing. They gave the they gave Abbott a deadline of noon on Friday to vacate Eagle Pass so they that they could remove the fencing, and Abbott did not uh, vacate Eagle Pass, and uh, there's been no confrontation and no consequences to Abbott. And to be clear, Abbott staying in Eagle Pass is actually not technically violating the Supreme Court's order. So you know we're in this we're in this strange zone where. You know, the Supreme Court gives very precise orders and Abbott can technically comply with those, but continue to take new aggressive action that requires a separate a separate lawsuit or at least a separate court order. And he can take that action much more quickly than the Biden administration can run off to court and get an order. Mm -hmm. So so he can always sort of stay ahead of them. And, and 
I have to say, um, you know, conservatives have been skeptical of Abbott in a lot of ways. They've wanted a lot more from him. But in the last couple of months, his administration has been very effective at what they've been doing down at the border, especially at creating political theater. You know, he's not shutting down the entire border. He's not really like there's not that many fewer people crossing the border uh, as a result of what he's doing. But what he is doing is helping make this a national issue. He's getting some wins uh, compared to the federal government that, um, you know, that create very good precedent for down the road that will enable governors to take more aggressive action. I wanted to bring to your attention a new book just off the press from Founders Press. It is a revolutionary reading of Romans 13 by Timothy Decker. I have not been able to read this book, but I've had conversations with Timothy about it. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on this and reading it myself. You can go to press.founders.org to order this book. It'll be especially helpful, I think, in this coming election year, 2024, to think more carefully about the civil magistrate and our duty as Christians to the civil magistrate. You can order this on pre-sale at press.founders.org through the end of January and orders will be shipping in February. Uh, so I want to have a question to kind of get done at a more foundational ideological level um, because I know we, ha- we have a lot of bleeding heart brothers and sisters. I mean, what makes this a crisis? I mean, you, those are big numbers for sure you're coming across the board, but you know, aren't we commanded as Christians to love the stranger, to, to love the stranger and welcome the sojourner and to be hospitable? Like why, what's wrong with all these people coming here? Yeah, well, um, there, uh, several things. I mean, one, the, the situation at our Southern border is anarchic. Um, there's just no rule of law. And of course, when that happens, all kinds of evil prevails. Um, you know, the coyotes, at the southern border, they're typically employed by cartels. So they're not just smuggling people, they're smuggling fentanyl. Um, all kinds of evil happens to the people that are in these migrant trains. Um, you know, sexual abuse, sexual trafficking. Um, there's a lot of murders on both sides of the border. Uh, there's, you know, there's the drugs, there's all of this stuff. Um, you know, more fundamentally, I, you know, the, the, the numbers are so material when, when we're talking about six or eight million people, uh, this is, this is sort of remaking the country in a way that the people of the country didn't sign up for. I mean, what, like our laws on the books say that anyone who enters the country illegally must be detained. And so, you know, the, the government, uh, especially Democrats, uh, seem to, they seem to want to ignore, you know, written law, the expressed will of the American people in order to uh, bring in a material sort of new, uh, new, new class of citizenry that will be present in the country at the graces of the Democratic administration. It will be reliant on them. It will generally vote the way that they want. And so it's, it's, it's fundamentally lawless. So you can talk about the crime and then you can talk about the, the political aspect. Um, both of those are present in this crisis. Well, the whole thing has so many um, um, tentacles, so many avenues of uh, wanting to pursue, to think rightly about it. I, you know, immigration is a tough issue and it has been. And we're down here in South Florida. I've been here 37, almost 38 years, and almost from day one, 
it was an issue for us in our church. Uh, we, we've seen migrant farm camps here where uh, illegal immigrants, those undocumented workers that are here uh, following the, the harvest, you know, doing the, the harvesting for various crops, be taken advantage of. It's grievous to see some of the things that have happened. And uh, years ago, our church was involved in trying to help uh, some folks in um, a little bit south of us who were uh, migrant farm workers, most of them undocumented, and they were being abused. They were being they, they were being um, mistreated. And um, the way one situation is, they were there were several of them that were living in a, a very small trailer. And they would get paid, they would pull their money, and they're sending a lot of money back to the places from which they came. But then they would be robbed and beaten, but they couldn't call the police because they're in the country uh, illegally. And this was taking place time after time. And we've even had folks in our church, we've had people that were converted. And in the process of working with them, we discovered, okay, they're not in the country illegally. And we helped them to either pursue legal status or go back to their country of origin. But we've also seen people that have been caught in a vice because of, in my reading, conflicting immigration laws. And, and they try to follow one path and they're told, oh, but if you do that, then you're, you're violating this law. So they get on that path. It's, oh, but if you do that, you're violating the law on the, you know, from the path you just left. And there's no way out for them. Mm-hmm. And so I remember writing articles uh, 20, 25 years ago talking about our broken immigration system and our need for it being completely revamped. And I had conservative friends call me liberal. You know, it's about the only time I've ever been called a liberal <laughs> in my life. And I'm thinking, I, I said to some of them, look, come, come to South Florida, sit across the table from brothers and sisters who are in this country, they want to be legal, but they can't even go back to their own countries now because of what's happened to their documentation and some of the, the, the stuff that happened and getting caught up in sting operations through no fault of their own. And you, they're caught. They're caught. And you know, we, we enlisted uh, immigration attorneys and talked to officials. And um, anyway, I, the, the system is a mess. And my heart is, uh, is, is really broken for those that want to do right and find no way to do it. Mm-hmm. But that's a far mm-hmm. cry different from what we're talking about in Texas and in the border crisis. Uh, people walking in or smuggling in to our borders, our lands, those that have no intention of doing what is legal, what is right. And I, I've had people, like you mentioned earlier, you know, the Old Testament laws about how you deal with sojourners, how you deal with strangers and such. Well, you, you know what would have, you know what a guy would have been called if he came in in an undocumented, illegal way into a, a sovereign nation in the Old Testament era? He wouldn't have been called an immigrant. He would have been called a spy. Mm-hmm. He would have been treated like mm-hmm. a spy. Mm-hmm. And yet to even raise that possibility today makes you sound like you don't care about people. Yeah. I often think of the the nation as kind of like the home writ large. And, you know, the, the type of principles that you would apply to your home are often principles that can be applied to the nation. Would you allow complete strangers into your home? You know, they've broken rules before and they come into your home and they eat your food and, you know, they, they do whatever they want in your home. No, I mean, we wouldn't behave that way. If right. somebody needs help, we would seek to help them, but we would also protect our own household as well in the process. So I, I see the, the crisis 
issue or the the crisis at the border similar to that like there are people that need help certainly Absolutely. but we do have as a nation we have a responsibility as as men we have a responsibility to our, our households and our families first and as a nation we have a responsibility to our citizens before we have a responsibility to any other nation's citizens yeah yeah it, it, it begins at home or else we're not going to be in a position to help those beyond uh Josh, you mentioned something about what Abbott's doing is good political theater, and I'm interested in you elaborating on why political theater would be good in this kind of situation. <laughs> but I, I kind of had that same sense when I think it was DeSantis who may have first done it. If he didn't, he did it early. Uh, Air DeSantis, you know, where he helped to mm-hmm. uh, pay for illegals who had crossed over being flown to Martha's Vineyard and dropped yeah. off there. And the outcry, Graham, it's exactly what you're talking about. It's like, no, 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 we're very sympathetic and we're very uh, much concerned about people at your doorstep. Don't bring them to our doorstep. And just seeing them light their hair on fire in Martha's Vineyard and people criticizing, castigating Governor DeSantis. (laughs) And and I guess in some ways that was political theater, but it made an incredibly important point. So is that what you're saying about uh, what's going on now with Governor Abbott in Texas? Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, the, like, to be clear, there is without question a crisis going on. The crisis is primarily felt by small towns away from the media. There's no coverage on this thing. And so, you know, what what when I say Abbott's doing engaging in good political theater, he's helping the whole nation to realize how the fact that there is a crisis mm. when otherwise maybe only, you know, smaller towns and rural areas would would feel that crisis. Um, and I, I say it's good because, you know, this is truly a federal issue. It's hard to actually, it's hard for one state and one governor to really fix it um, because it's already happening. Um, the numbers that were coming into Texas are just shifting over to Arizona and California now. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that that's sort of illustrative of the fact that, you know, you, you really need a federal government to mind the borders <clears throat> because there's, there's multiple states. And so, you know, part of what's happening that I think is good is, you know, the this is going to be a major issue in the upcoming election. Mm. Um, and it's going to, I, I think, be very, um, you know, he Abbott's actions are impressing upon the public just how negligent the Biden administration has been on this matter and, and hopefully is creating the political will and the appetite for real reform um, once we have the politicians in place. And just just a reminder, I, I think people probably know this, but according to polling data, approximately 66% of the country supports uh, deportation of illegals that are present in America mm-hmm. and a border wall, which mm-hmm. are, those are sort of the, the, you know, if you hear the media talk, they would say those are sort of the extreme right-wing positions, but that's a good political issue. There's very few issues in this country where you can get 66% of the people to agree with it. Mm-hmm. So... It's it's good that Abbott is pressing this issue. I think it's going to be a dominating one nationally in our politics through the general election this fall. What do you see coming out of this crisis? Uh, we talked a little bit about federalism uh, and the importance and the need for us to recover a kind of a robust federalism. Do you see that taking place here um, as Abbott really kind of goes toe to toe with the federal government? I do. Yeah. Um, the you know, here, here's the, the our our country is is very divided on a lot of things right now, and what that does is it creates gridlock up at the federal level. You know, when was the Congress used to pass these large 
you know, uh, bills like material legislation. You said pass budgets. We barely get those anymore because we can't, our politicians up in Washington can't agree. And that's largely the case because the people are just have very deep disagreements. And, you know, the, the, I think the path forward for this country is allowing more of these policy decisions to be made at the state level. That can be a pressure release valve on our national politics. We don't have to federalize every single debate um, if we can get states, um, you know, more empowered to make these sorts of decisions. So what's going on with respect to immigration, that's just a flashpoint over one little particular issue. Um, but the broader, I think the broader front is what you could call reinvigorated federalism, getting back to an arrangement that's closer to what we had at our founding and through much of our early history. Um, and, you know, you guys have a governor in Florida in Ron DeSantis, who has done similar things on different issues. Mm -hmm. So, you know, especially during COVID and, you know, I love the, um, the surgeon general that he hired, who was sort of promulgating like competing medical guidance for the citizens of Florida. That's, that's the state sort of getting um, competitive with the federal government and trying to take a function that the feds usually hold and bring it down to the state level. So I hope we see a lot more of that. You know, we've seen it on the left too. Um, obviously, we've had sanctuary cities and sanctuary states for years. Um, we saw states allowing uh, recreational marijuana in, in violation of federal laws that are still on the books to this day. Um, so so on, the, on the left side of the aisle, states have been very aggressive about this sort of thing. And I yeah. think we're in, in DeSantis and a little bit in Abbott. I think we're seeing a little bit of the spirit start to emerge on the right as well. And I think that's a really good thing. I think that's um, if this country is going to stay together and, and hold to our constitution and all the rest, the future has to involve that. I, I think that's the way that this country can continue, continue to survive as a constitutional republic. Thank you for joining us today for this conversation on the sword and the trowel. Tom and I wanted to invite you to come and join us down here in sunny Southwest Florida, January 23rd through the 25th for our national founders conference. Uh, this next theme for next year is going to be revive us. Oh Lord, a, a whole conference on revival. Uh, Dr. Tom Askell, Dr. Bodie Bauckham, Jeff Johnson, Dr. Joel Beakey will be some of the speakers that will be there with us. It's going to be a wonderful time as the founders national conferences always are of fellowship and growing in the word. Uh, so go to, founders.org. Uh, look at some of the information on the conference. We'd love to have you here. And if you'd like more information, you can see some of that at the end of this podcast. People on the right for a long time have looked at the left and say, well, they're not playing by the rules. We're going to play by the rules because, you know, we're you know, upstanding. We want to do the right thing. Uh, but we haven't realized on the right that uh, we're actually not playing the same game anymore. Um, and so yeah. we can't play by the same rules that were, that were played by previously. Yeah. But I appreciate what governor DeSantis and others have done, but I think he's taken the lead on it. He just recently said, look, if the States don't have the right to do what governor Abbott's doing in Texas, uh, the constitution would never have been ratified. You know, th- mm-hmm. th- there's no way if, uh, this, this vision of what America ought to be, that's coming from the left, if that were inherent in our founding, we wouldn't have been founded on the constitution we have. And I States think, never would have ceded power to a federal government that wouldn't protect them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and Josh, the, the, the legislative aspect of this. So we, we've got uh, U S Senator Langford from Oklahoma 
who is a part mm. of um, some legislation to try to to mitigate this issue of immigration. And I haven't read all the details of his proposals, but it just sounds to me like it's unacceptable. I wouldn't accept it. I don't think it's a good idea. Can you speak to that about what's going on there? Yeah, Langford, Senator Langford was roped into um, bipartisan negotiations, uh, bipartisan. Yeah. Uh, he's really the only Republican on that side. But he was roped into those bipartisan negotiations to get an immigration reform deal done. And um, the, the details of that, uh, the text of the bill, to be clear, has not yet been released. But the details of the deal have been leaked uh, by a number of different reporters and this is the way it often goes. When someone suspects that the bill is going to be unpopular, they they try to make sure they have the votes and then they hold off on releasing the text for as long as possible so they can't get scrutinized. But, you know, the basics of the deal, um, it, it, uh, it has some things that look decent on paper, um, you know, so it, 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 uh, it supposedly streamlines some of the laws around uh, asylum claims so that those can happen more quickly. So it reduces the time uh, that, that it takes to get an asylum claim processed from 12 months to six months. Um, and then it also, a, a couple other minor points, but really fundamentally what the bill does is it says that um, up to 5,000 people can illegally cross the border per day. And then after 5,000 people have crossed, the administration is supposed to shut down the border and just turn everybody away automatically. Oh and the, the, I mean, it's, it's, it, you guys are laughing. You see the absurdity immediately. Our laws on the books today say that um, nobody should cross the border illegally. <laughs> And so, so the, you know, he, five million a day, uh, five five thousand per day. This is one point eight million people per year. Wow! Um, before the Biden administration, that would have been a record number uh, <laughs> ever in a year. You know, and so it's it's legislatively blessing something that the administration is not currently doing. And here's the real thing: he's giving away that legislative blessing on five thousand entries um, for entirely illusory benefits, like a law that you pass is only as good as the administration that's standing behind it, faithfully yeah. executing it. Yeah. And this administration has a track record. It shows they will not enforce the laws on the books. And so, you know, when you give away the house for just another law that the, that the administration can and likely will ignore, um, you've made a very bad deal, like catastrophically bad. So, you know, Langford is, is, um, you know, I don't know what he was thinking when he struck this deal, but it's it's very unpopular. Um, Y'all may have followed, you know, our friend uh, Dusty Devers in Oklahoma um, had suggested that he's going to pass resolutions in the Oklahoma Senate. Actually, over the weekend, he got uh, the Oklahoma Republican Party to pass resolutions that um, that censured James, Lang James Langford. I think they said until he backs out of this deal and renounces his support for it. We're withdrawing support for him. Good. Um, so yeah, huge, huge, and huge. Um, you know, huge thing to happen, and that really helps the conservatives in D.C. on the Hill who are fighting tooth and nail to stop the Langford compromise right now. Um, you know, stepping back, it's very odd that Langford would try to strike this deal at this specific time when Abbott is so successfully, um, you know, contesting federal action at the border. And when it appears 
somewhat likely that that Trump will, you know, win in the fall. And uh, and of course, when he does, he he's at least saying he intends to enact much more sweeping, meaningful immigration reform. And so a lot of commentators and I see some sense in this are suggesting that the the Lankford deal is sort of poisoning the well or inoculating a future Republican administration from actually taking the meaningful steps that need to be done to 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 really provide a secure border like you know, like a wall and like, um, you know, and like uh, some some deportation at scale of the uh, tens of millions of uh, people who are in the country illegally who cross the border knowingly and illegally. You know, it also says something about where we are when our political leaders and our political servants are saying, well, yes, you can. We're going to make a law that says that you can break the law at least this much. But after you break the law (laughs) this much, then the law is going to come into effect. It's ridiculous. Why why don't we uh, just follow California and say, hey, man, 950 Mm -hmm. bucks. You want to walk out with that without paying? That's fine. It's not illegal anymore. That's what we're doing. This is nuts. Mm -hmm. We can't go down this rabbit hole, but I do want at least uh, uh, to make a point of it that Senator, Senator Langford is also a Southern Baptist minister, as mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Uh, State Senator Dusty Devers. Uh, they're both Southern Baptists, mm-hmm. and they could not be further apart in thinking about uh, how the political theology that we should have as Bible-believing Christians should operate in this situation. And that ought to be a wake-up call. That yeah. at least ought to be a point of reference for any serious-minded Christian to recognize the way that we have been led to think about these things, uh, we're beginning to see how absurd the end result is. And praise God for a man like Dusty Devers, who is willing to say, wait a minute, you know what? The emperor really doesn't have any clothes on. Let's back up and look at the, the facts of the case. So you know, praise God for what he is doing with Dusty. Well, what do you think is going to happen? I know you're not a prophet, but uh, what do you think is going to be the outcome of the political theater taking place in Texas. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's such a rapidly evolving situation. It's very difficult to predict all of it. Um, you know, the Texas has laws that they passed as as a way to challenge uh, this case from 2011, uh, Arizona versus U.S. That was the case that said states can't undertake to do. They really can't try anything to help fix the immigration crisis themselves. Um, so Texas passed laws just this past year that directly challenged that. I think that's going to go up to the Supreme Court. And I think I think it's very likely that they're going to rule for Texas and overturn Arizona versus U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be a really good thing. With the, I mean, again, it, it's no state single-handedly can fix this issue. But when states are allowed to do what they can to work on this issue, a couple important things happen. They show that it's possible. They show that, you know, with with uh, good leadership and the right policies, a state, you know, can 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 mitigate the effects of the immigration crisis. And then that that's a chastisement to the federal government Mm. who is squandering resources and incompetent in trying to fix this crisis. So I I think that's likely to happen. You know, there's not going to be there's not going to be a civil war. There's not going to be a constitutional crisis. I, I the feds aren't going to be arresting Abbott or something like that. None of that's off the, on the table. But I, I think all year you'll see a, a game of um, of whack a mole <laughs> where <laughs> Abbott keeps doing things and it keeps forcing the Biden administration to rush off and take him to court. And, <clears throat> and um, 
I hope as the year goes along, Abbott continues to win. I mean, so far he's been winning with the optics. Mm -hmm. I hope he continues to win because that keeps this a national issue and increases the pressure to get something real done in Washington. And if, if the Republicans win in the fall, I think they would win with a mandate to, um, to, to finally build a real wall and, you know, finally um, meaningfully enforce the laws that we have on the books. You know, we've got a book on this uh, that is so pertinent to these issues. It's called A Revolutionary Reading of Romans 13 by Timothy Decker. Uh, I think it, it's just come out, and we've got it on pre-sale right now. Mm-hmm. I think for only like 22 bucks or something. So I encourage folks to check that out. And there's another book that's really uh, relevant by Matthew Trujella called The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates. Mm-hmm. And this is something that is out of our Protestant and Reformed uh, history of political theology and basically arguing that the closer the magistrate is to the people, the higher his responsibility is to protect the people, even from uh, higher magistrates, and mm-hmm. sometimes especially from higher magistrates. Mm-hmm. We've seen this happen, uh, praise God, on the part of some sheriffs, like in New Mexico when the governor threatened to uh, you know, start confiscating or registering weapons. The sheriffs in New Mexico said, we will not enforce this law. And you think, well, that's lawlessness. No, that's them taking seriously their calling to uphold the Constitution, which when you pledge allegiance to it, you, you're you saying we will defend it from all enemies without or within. Mm-hmm. And whenever a, a higher magistrate would say, you know, we're going to neglect this law of the land, it's the duty of the lesser magistrate to do what is right. And people have asked, where do you see this biblically? What's the biblical precedent for it? I, I think it's in First Samuel 22 where um, Ahimelech, the priest, is ordered by Saul to kill uh, a person, and he refuses to do it. Or no, Ahimelech is designed by Paul, by uh, King Saul, to be killed. Mm-hmm. He orders one of his uh, uh, captains, captains yeah. to kill Ahimelech. That's it. And he won't do it. And mm-hmm. that's right. He shouldn't do it. He disobeyed the king righteously. Uh-huh. And uh, that's the, the point we need to be talking to our sheriffs about and our local congressional leaders about as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Josh, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, helping us untangle a little bit of this confusing and uh, difficult and that vitally important situation of immigration and the need for uh, immigration reform and to think rightly about what's going on down at the border. Uh, we as Christians need to be uh, trying to speak into the situation the best we can and trying to help those that are doing right. Uh, recently in our Sunday morning worship service, we specifically took time to pray for Governor Abbott as we did for President Biden, and we normally pray for President Biden every Sunday, uh, but uh, we don't always pray for other state governors every Sunday. But we did this time asking God to give wisdom and to uh, provide a, a righteous pathway forward that would be good for the nation, good for the extension of his kingdom throughout this nation and from this nation around the world. And we'd encourage all Christians to join us in those prayers. So, brother, thank you for joining us today on The Sword and Trial. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We're glad you joined us today. And if we can do anything to help you, serve you in any way at Founders, please don't hesitate to reach out and give us that opportunity. The history of the Church of Jesus Christ is the history of revival. God has worked powerfully in unusual ways in different seasons during the history of the church. When God comes down in reviving power, things change. People are converted. 
God's people are sanctified. His church is expanded. The testimony of the gospel goes out with greater power and greater boldness. And we are in desperate need of revival in these days. And it's not that revival is something different than normal Christianity. Revival is God working in His normal ways in intensification, fast, where it goes deep and the work goes wide. In Psalm 44, the psalmist says to the Lord, O God, our fathers have told us, we've heard with our ears of the great things that you did for them in their day, how you drove out their enemies from before them. And they didn't accomplish these things through their own strength, but God, you accomplished it by manifesting your power, making bare your mighty right arm. And we want to issue that same petition to the Lord. We want to unite together and plead with God to come and revive His work in the midst of these years. I urge you to join us January 23rd through 25th, 2025 in Southwest Florida for the National Founders Conference when we will be focused upon this vitally important theme of revival. Revive us, O Lord. That is our plea. That will be the subject of all of our meditations and all of our instructions from the Word of God. And it will be the burden of our heart as we unite together, asking God to come and do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves, to do what He's done in the past, how He's been pleased to pour out His Spirit upon people that did not deserve it in order that His name might be honored and glorified in those days.